pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this gift that you've given us of a Sabbath rest, where we can come together as a people, people who have been redeemed by your hand, who are sustained by your hand, like-minded and able to worship you. Lord, to dwell in your presence this morning, to be here and know that you're present with us, that your spirit is at work, um, is amazing, and it's not common. Um, Lord, we're thankful for these times where we can gather uh, to rest, to worship, to open the word, to have a specific time where we focus on you and your will and your goodness. Lord, this morning I pray uh, for C3 out in commerce. We pray for David and, uh, and his family as they're serving in ministry. I pray for Ron and Patty Perrone as they're um, working on doing the pastoral work with uh, David, as Ron is doing the pastoral work with David as their families are walking together. I pray um, for the details as, as they're trying to figure out, you know, um, things on where to meet and how to reach a college campus that people are here a lot of the time and not here the other part of the time. I pray that you would help them work through those details, but most importantly, I pray for their worship. I pray that they are um, overwhelmed with your goodness. I pray that they're worshiping you because you're God. I pray that this morning here. I pray that we would worship you not just for the things that you do, but because you're God and you're completely worthy of worship. Uh, Lord, we love you. Uh, we pray that you would guide our time and focus our minds and our hearts on uh, that which you would desire. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Open up to Exodus 16, please. Last week we considered uh, God's provision. And what we're going to see this week is that provision and rest are not two completely separate topics um, that have nothing to do with each other. In Exodus 16, they merge and collide, and we see that provision and rest very much have a lot to do with each other because of how God ordains his will to be carried out on the earth. Um, before we jump in, last week I quoted the book Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, and I misspoke. The author is not Richard Baxter. It is Jeremiah Burroughs. I was, however, encouraged that a handful of you were able to call me out on that, that you would be so familiar with your 1600s Puritan pastor authors whose last names start with B. That was encouraging. Thank you for that. So uh, if you would like to read that, which I encourage you to, it is The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment by Jeremiah Burroughs. Baxter wrote, Reformed Pastor. Read that too. Exodus 16. We uh, covered the first half of Exodus 16 last week. We'll cover the second half this week. So we'll jump right into verse 19. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over until morning. He's speaking of manna, this divine, wonderful gift from the Lord to feed his people, as there are many of them in the wilderness of sin. He says, do not leave any of that manna over until morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each, and when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, 
and all that is left over lay aside to be kept until morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today, for today is the Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generation so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. An omer is the tenth part of an ephah. Don't miss that last verse. It's very important. Um, last week, we climbed into this, this Exodus narrative, and um, we're importing our senses, and we're seeing it as our salvation story. We're not just making it personal. It is personal. We must realize how personal it is as we import our senses and try to see what it was like for our Israelite brothers and sisters in the wilderness of sin with this manna and this commanded rest. Chapter 1 in the book of Exodus, to give you just a brief overview of Exodus, chapter 1 covers a few centuries. Chapter 2, 80 years. Chapters 3 through 40, about a year. So you can't just read it and think that you're going day by day. You've got to realize there's a lot of time covered, particularly in that first chapter. In that first chapter that covers a few centuries, um, Israel grows in number, particularly from 70, who were with Joseph when they went to Egypt, to over 600,000 men. That's a lot of growth. That's a lot of babies. That's a lot of God fulfilling his promise that he made to Abraham, saying, I will make you as numerous as the sand on the shores and the stars and the sky, just like God promised Abraham. And a new Pharaoh comes into power that did not know Joseph. See, the Pharaoh who brought Joseph over knew him, was impressed with him, and showed favor to his people. They stayed in the land of Goshen. But this new Pharaoh didn't know Joseph. Rather than favoring the Israelites, he begins to fear them because there's so dang many of them. Look at all the, where, where are all these Israelites come. Who are these Israelites? And because he doesn't know Joseph, he didn't, he didn't see that favor from the Lord. He didn't see this as a benefit. What happened was there was oppression aimed against the Israelites. They were greatly oppressed. He fears them. Not only that, the Hebrew midwives were ordered to kill the firstborn of all the Israelites. We see from the house of Levi, Moses' life is spared, leading to him floating the river, much like a preserved Noah in a little baby ark covered in pitch. Um, and like Noah, he was drawn out of the water, and he was blessed abundantly, and eventually Moses was appointed to a place of great power. That's all chapter 1. Lot. Chapter 2 is about 80 years. When Moses grows up, he murders someone. Yes, he murders someone. It's interesting how many patriarchs of our faith we look back on who have murdered someone. God redeems even them. 
He flees to Midian, he marries Zipporah, and he shepherds the flocks of Jethro, his father-in-law. These are important details, so don't be like, all right, is this going to be a history lesson the whole morning? This is our story. Climb into it. It's personal. Chapters 3 through 40 take the place over the course of a little over a year. This is a crazy year for our Israelite brethren. The ten plagues, the Passover, the exodus from Israel, the crossing of the Red Sea, the pillar of cloud and fire, the bitter water made sweet, Elam with its, remember, its springs and its palm trees, but God didn't create them for Elam. For Elam. He created them for something greater. And they moved on to the wilderness of sin where they were given manna, as we saw last week. They are in chapter 16 moving towards Sinai where they would receive the law in chapter 20. What we saw was that Israel had a worship problem that was making itself known in how they dealt with their hunger. Israel had a problem that they, it wasn't just a hunger problem. It wasn't just a manna problem. It wasn't just a, a preference problem. It was a worship problem. Their issue was, are, are they trusting the Lord? Are they walking according to his commands? It was a worship problem. It was making itself known in how they dealt with their hunger. Israel clearly had a hard time keeping a sober mind in regards to the greatness of their God and the depravity of Egypt. Some parallels we're going to see this morning. We'll consider that Israel also had another worship problem that made itself known in their refusal of rest. Why would anybody refuse rest? We would never do that, right? We'll get to that. Then God gave them the gift of provision last week, and they walked out, and it's all over the ground, enough to feed about a million people probably. And they said, what is it? They didn't even know what it was. Here, the gift of rest is given, and it's refused. Sadly, not received as a gift. Last week in Numbers 11, we see that they had moved on from Sinai, and they're in the wilderness still amazingly being fed by this manna from the Lord. And they, all they have to say about it is, all we have to look at is this manna. They just, they're just disgusted with this manna. And they want their fish and their... That, remember that weird diet they had of like garlic and leeks and stinky breath diet? Um, they, uh, they saw the blessing as commonplace. They didn't see it as a blessing. And it's seen as actually more of a hindrance to keeping them from appeasing their own appetites. They had the strong craving, remember. This week we'll consider that... Um, Often, the gift of regular rest can be seen as a hindrance rather than a blessing, and that's not right. So look at verse 19 in Exodus 16. And Moses said to them, let, none, let no one leave any of it over till morning. Remember, God was testing them, right? We saw in the beginning of Exodus 16 that God said, I'm going to give them man, and I'm going to test them to see if they'll walk in my law, walk according to the way I tell them to walk. And so God's testing them. The test would find out if they would trust God. This is not a matter of seeing if they prefer God's design. God's not going to Israel and saying, I like this Exodus thing that you guys are doing. I like it. I want to be a part of what you guys are doing. God's not coming alongside this people and saying, I like it. I'm seeing good things. And I want to be a part of what you're doing. God is boldly proclaiming, I am God. You will walk according to my statutes. You are my people because I made you my people. Would they trust that God, with God involved, there would be seven days of provision for six days of rest, or for six days of work? See, I already want more rest. Seven days of provision with only six days of work. And why does God care about testing them to get a particular answer? And this is our first main point this morning. The reason he cares about it is because everyone is watching. Everyone is watching. God's people are supposed to be different. They're supposed to look different and not just for the sake of being different, we're image bearers. 
God's design is that the world looks at his people and sees his glory and him. If your boss asks you to work to such a degree that you have no Sabbath rest, when you say thanks but no thanks, the loss of, the loss of a Sabbath rest is too great. At that point, you're not being a bad employee. Apparently here, you are bearing the image of your creator. One pastor said that all the world is a stage. He was quoting the Shakespeare play, and we're merely the players. Where God's using us as he sees fit to communicate the message that he sees fit so that he would be seen rightly. So God's watching, and what result does he get from his test? Look at verse 20. Did they do as he said? But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. It's a strong word, stank. And Moses was angry with them. Not listening meant that they said they did not listen. They kept some of it over. Don't keep it overnight. Some of them kept it over till night. Not listening meant that they're saying, I know God said that he would provide more tomorrow, but I can't be sure until tomorrow. So I'll hold on to some of this overnight, even though God said not to. That's what they're proclaiming there. It's an audible. They're at the line of scrimmage and saying, yeah, I know. I know what God said, uh, but I can't be sure. So I'll just hold on to some of this. This is the difference between walking by faith and walking by sight. Now, I'm not saying it's unfaithful for you to have a savings account. You may be saying, so we're supposed to spend everything before we go to bed? No. I'm not saying you can't have a savings account, something to put away for a rainy day, a contingency plan, order. I'm not speaking against stewardship. However, Israel was putting their trust in manna, not God. And they turned out to not even like manna. It's ironic. They're putting their trust in manna, not God. If you have a savings account, that's great, but don't put your trust in it. In fact, if having it makes, so, makes it so that you don't have to trust God or you don't see it as something that God has already provided, I would offer that it's altogether better for you not to have it. God never goes to great lengths to keep us from trusting him. He never goes to great lengths to keep us from trusting him. The point is to keep our eyes on him, not manna. Moses wasn't angry just because it stank. It's easy to read that verse and say, I'd be angry too. 600,000 stank. He wasn't angry just because it stank. He was angry because they disobeyed a direct command from God. He's being a good leader. That was a right anger because they disobeyed a direct command from the Lord. Look at verse 21. Morning by morning, they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted away. Small side note on this verse. Morning by morning, they gathered it. That means it took work. You had to drag your rear end out of bed and collect it before the sun came up and melted it. So they didn't really have to work for it as much as they did have to get up and do what God was already providing for, provided for them. In large part, many of us have experienced this, this blessing in, in, in Scripture where you're enjoying vineyards you did not plant and living in houses you did not build. That's God's blessing. But you had to get up out of bed. As we talk about rest, I want to make it crystal clear that rest is a gift from God because we have worked hard to further his kingdom. Sabbath is a gift, not a lifestyle. 2 Corinthians 12, 15, Paul states, I will most gladly spend and be spent on the souls of your children, the souls of God's children. It's a bold statement. It's kind of been something that's been driving our staff for the better part of this year, that we will most gladly spend and be spent on souls. Can we do it gladly? 
Are we spending? Are we being spent? And is it on souls or is it on other things that aren't as important? Work hard. Our staff meeting this week, we talked about we need to be a staff that works really, really, really hard, but rest rightly. There's balance there that's God-ordained. So it's not just about rest all the time. It's work hard and enjoy the rest when God gives it by his design. Some have a problem accepting, gift, accepting this gift, as we will see shortly. But some have a hard time accepting that God calls us to work. For some, the threat is to fall off the cliff of overworking yourself with no divine rest. While for others, the threat is to fall off the cliff of self-preservation. I don't want to get my nails dirty or something. No one's allowed to say, I trust God for my daily provision. I just don't want to get up that early. And frankly, I don't even know where my omer jar is to go collect the manna. Turn to Proverbs 24. This Proverbs articulates this pretty well. This, remember, Proverbs is wisdom literature. So there's statements made in it by what we could call wise believers. There are warnings given that say, don't do this because it's not wise. Proverbs 24, verses 30 through 34. I passed by the field of a sluggard. Now, the first thing to notice there is you don't see the sluggard. They see the field and they define the person who owns it. I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense. And behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles and its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw it and I considered it. I looked and I received instruction. They're receiving instruction from the, the way that this field is. They're looking at the field and not saying, hmm, bummer. They're receiving instruction. They're considering it. They're being taught. I saw it and considered it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. This is the example that's sadly given to the wise person to observe what not to do. Don't focus more on the rest than you do on the work. Spend and be spent gladly on the souls of God's children, working hard in all that you do. Your job, in, in case you're wondering, your created purpose is God's glory, not just work. So whatever work you do, it's different for everybody sitting here. The aim and the purpose is to put God's glory on display in everything. So people look at how you do that work and how you live, and how your family functions, how you spend and are spent, and they see the goodness of your great God who has ordained it so that you live according to his purposes. I recently heard one pastor say, you have no business in rest and solitude unless you've poured yourself out in ministry. Look at verses 22 through 26. It's a lot of moving parts in these few verses. On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each, and when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil. And all that is left over lay aside to be kept till morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them. And it did not stink. And there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. 
Six days you shall gather, but on the seventh, which is the Sabbath, there will be none. First, um, the seventh day. The sixth day they gathered twice as much because there was twice as much. The Lord blessed them. He's showing them that six days of work is enough for seven days of provision when God is involved. Because the next day, particularly the seventh day, was to be kept and observed as a Sabbath. The Saturday we're speaking of, the seventh day. Sunday's the first day, Saturday's the seventh day. So after the seventh day comes the first day, not the eighth day. Got that? Okay. So why the seventh day? It goes back to Genesis 2, chapters 2 through 3. God is intentionally taking them back to the point where they could see his work very clearly. So God takes them back. They're in this wilderness of sin in Exodus 16, and God takes them back to Genesis 2. And in Genesis 2, verses 2 through 3, you do not have to turn there. Just listen. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. He rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. That's good news. I kind of feel like this message, I, I feel like I've got really good news for the body about rest. But I also feel like a lot of us may be in the place where many of the Israelites were, where it's like, yeah, but I got a lot to do. I don't know how I feel about receiving that. In short, Israel was to observe the seventh day because God said so. God blessed that day. God made that day holy. A good Jew was to observe that day to point to the fact that they believed in, submitted to, and followed the one true God. While everyone else was working, they could look at the Israelite and see something different. Not a lazy person, a God-fearing person. Namely, that God who created all things created in six days, rested on the seventh. They can see that as they look at the lifestyle of the Israelite. We shelve all of our dailiness on this day to point to and enjoy our creator. So this raises the question, why are we here on Sunday morning? That's the first day, not the seventh day. Why why do we meet on Sundays generally, not on Saturdays? Jesus conquered death and raised from the dead on Sunday. In the same way that manna prefigures Christ as our all-sufficient eternal bread of life, So, Sabbath prefigures Christ as our eternal rest. About 300 years after Jesus died and raised from the dead, after his death and resurrection, Constantine made it official that the new Sabbath, the new Lord's Day would be Sunday, the day of Christ's resurrection, the first day, not Saturday, the seventh. In America, in the early 1900s, around the time toward the latter part of the Industrial Revolution, everybody's paying attention, Don't zone out. During the latter part of the Industrial Revolution, labor unions were facing the difficulty of the Jews wanting to observe Saturday and the Christians wanting to observe Sunday, and thus was born the two-day weekend. God bless America, right? So we can't look back and say, we have a two-day weekend because that's the way God wanted it. We have two days. Do you use both of them? Do you use one of them? It's not that old. It wasn't made really official. The whole nation wasn't really observing it until the 1940s the two-day weekend. Don't be guilty of chronological snobbery, thinking that just because we do what we do right now is the best way it's ever been done. Solemn rest, holy to the Lord. It's the seventh day. For us now, it's the first day, but in this setting, it was the seventh day. And then it's a solemn rest, holy to the Lord, the Sabbath rest. The New Testament explanation of the Sabbath is a little bit different than the Old Testament explanation of the Sabbath. In the Old Testament, if you broke the Sabbath, you could be put to death. Bummer. In the New Testament, Revelation 1.10 refers to the Lord's Day. 
Christ is our Sabbath rest, which has begun and is not yet fully present. Lindsay and I were talking about this. It sounds so heady. It sounds so hard. Christ is your Sabbath rest. Moment by moment, you rest in Christ. This isn't all that there is, but in Christ, we get a sweet taste of the greater things to come. Christ is your Sabbath rest. We do not work to gain favor or prove that we do not need God anymore because we are so very smart and industrialized and, and you know, brilliant with our finances. We live every moment of every day mindful of and motivated by the fact that Christ has accomplished for us what we could never accomplish for ourselves. We rest in the finished work of Christ always. Turn to Hebrews 3. Hebrews 3 explains this. I'm not going to go into great depth on these verses. I really want to read them so you can hear them to see this New Testament account of Sabbath rest. And I hope that one of the things I've struggled with this week is I'm a little sad as I read these verses because these Israelite brethren that we're getting to know in the wilderness, it doesn't speak so highly of them right here. Their hard-heartedness led them away from the Lord in large part. Not all of them, but many. And so as we read through this, read it soberly and hear the details that God wants to share connecting Exodus 16 and Hebrews. Hebrews 3, verses 7 through 9. A rest for the people of God. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. That should sound familiar. Where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I sworn my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, brothers, those who are living in this time after Christ has conquered death. Take care, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, as it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Look at chapter 4, verse 6. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. 
and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Striving to enter Christ's rest may sound odd. You've heard it from this pulpit before, you will hear it again. Is it work or is it rest? The answer is yes. Unbelief is what kept them from entering it. So fight against unbelief. They're, they're looking back on this Exodus account and seeing what went wrong with, with many of the people of God. And unbelief kept them from entering it. Fight against unbelief. Sin deceived them and they fell away from God. Put sin to death. Other things looked more important. And the result was the chasing after of those things. No longer seeing the importance of spending and being spent in the direction of God-centeredness. Just for a moment, try to picture a culture that defines what's important and spends all of their resources and all of their time chasing after the things that they define as important without regard to God. Just try to think of a culture that would be like that. It's a sad circumstance. God's people are never intended to live like that. It's all about God. It's all about God-centeredness. It's all about regularly, specifically saying we follow that God, the creator, who did that in six days and rested on the seventh. There seemed now to be a better way to spend and be spent than what God had said. Enter God's rest and rest from your works like God. Rather than falling by disobedience, let the word of the Lord define the intentions of your heart. If this is not defining the intentions of your heart, if you're not allowing this to direct you, you will be directed towards godlessness. You will go after what feels good or whatever, what everyone else is defining. And you'll spend and you'll be spent in that direction without rest. Don't turn there, but Revelation 22.5 has this beautiful picture. Listen as I read. And night will be no more. This is at the very end. This is toward the end of your Bible, where the Christ is returning to take his bride home. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Days and nights that separate the coming of each week will cease to exist. What we're seeing there at the end is that time itself, a created thing. Remember, time is a created thing. Remember that. Time itself, a created thing, is going to merge back into eternity. And what will remain is Sabbath. What remains at the end is the rest, the eternal rest in Christ. Like, you can define days and months and even years in large part by natural phenomena, which I use the phrase natural phenomena, like the stars and everything, loosely because we kind of know who created that natural phenomena, our creator God. You can define many of those things by these natural phenomena, but the weak can't be defined by it. The only way the weak is defined is by our God who created all things in six days and rested on the seventh. That's why there is a weak that's why there is a seven-day pattern. And at the end of time, when time merges back in with eternity, that goes away and all that remains is Sabbath. That's really, really good news for us. Until Christ returns to take his bride home, we observe the Lord's day, a day of solemn rest holy to the Lord. The Sabbath is, as Jesus said, for showing mercy and doing good. In John 6... I believe it was John 6, where he was in the field and they picked the grain and there were some guys there to, hey, what are you doing? You're breaking the Sabbath rules. I heard a pastor explain it this week where, you know, they're in the middle of a field. The, the scribes and the Pharisees, the scribes would make more rules 
on top of things, and then the Pharisees would go and enforce them. So they're in the middle of a field, and there just happens to be some Pharisees there saying, aha, you broke the rule. And there's this picture of Jesus saying, I know your scribe made that rule, but I made your scribe. Guess what's more important here? And Jesus makes this statement saying, the Sabbath is for showing mercy and doing good. What that means is it's not about what you cannot do. The Sabbath rest is not about what you cannot do. It's about receiving God-given rest that is both a blessing and a sign to the world that we have not forgotten our God and his plan. It says, I'm not defined by my work. I'm defined by my God. I believe what God says, that he can and will make six days of work enough for seven days provision. God defines me, not my job. If God says this is a blessed and holy day unto him, then I will lead my family to rest and set their minds even more specifically toward him. Today will look different because my God is completely unique. One commentator said, this day, the Lord's day, is still needed to bear witness to a self-reliant, self-sufficient world that our work does not save us or define us. Christ does. God wanted this truth about the importance of rest and seeing him as our provider. He wanted it to be so defined for his people that before he gave them the law, he gave them this experience in the wilderness. See God's work. See, see kind of the bird's eye view as we get to stand back today and see all that has happened. He wanted them to understand the importance of this even before he gave them the law. He gave them this experience in the desert that points them back to the beginning. He's saying, if you do this my way, it's a blessing. The bread will not stink But if you choose to shelve my ways for a way of living that you deem as more fitting, then your provision will have a stench about it. You see that? If you shelve God's design and you decide to just do it however you think is best, without regards to any commands from the one true God, then your provision will have a stench about it. It will never be as sweet as obedience. I was thinking about this stench. What are some ways that disobedient, self-reliant, restless work can begin to stink? And this is where it gets personal for everybody in the room. Because I don't think we're regularly defined as a people who are real good at rest. I was thinking about this message this week and I was just thinking, man, I don't know how many conversations I've had about people just flat wore out. Conversations in the parking lot, conversations in the hallway. Just, man, I'm tired. God gives rest. I was thinking about the stench. The ways that disobedient, self-reliant, godless work, restless work can begin to stink. It can happen in our marriages. This is where you see the dialogue about the man's job being referred to as his mistress, where he spends his nights and weekends. His wife and kids stay back home in a house that, though it may be bigger because of all of the overtime and bonuses, is still void of daddy and husband. The stench can be experienced as you leave for work. And your kids see it as a sad occasion, as opposed to blessing and provision for your family. I've heard many of, your men, of you men sitting in this congregation, particularly some of those who work out at L3, make statements like, I don't want to give my life to them. Or I'm so frustrated that they don't seem to care about my family at all. To which I would say, good, you're not supposed to be okay with that. There may be a season where you have to put in more time. That's a season. That's not the norm. 
That's not your created purpose. It's not to be perpetuated. At what point does overtime just become time? I had a conversation with someone who was frustrated and a person I greatly respect. So as you hear me recap this conversation, don't think it's bad. But he was saying, man, this, this overtime that they're wanting to kill me with is just, it's, I think I've been on overtime for like three years. I was like, that's not overtime. That's time. You define it differently when it becomes the norm. It shouldn't be the norm. The feeling inside of you that says this just can't be right is divine. And I would encourage you, do not ignore it and do not allow someone else to encourage you to ignore it. No matter what authoritative role they may have. Verse 27. On the seventh day, some of the people went out together, but they found none. This struck me as so familiar, sadly familiar. The very first noted seventh day of rest here in Exodus 16. Man, you'd, be, you'd think, let's just kick back. This is awesome. But no. Some of them go out to get their manna as they had the previous six days. Without regards to God's commands, their thoughts may have been something along the lines of, man, everyone else is lazy. Let me go get some manna. Get ahead a little bit. Yeah, y'all enjoy your rest. I'm going to enjoy my manna. But what happened? I love this. There was none. They found none. Not a little. They didn't, they didn't reap a little bit of benefit. None. Nada. Zip. Zilch. You can almost see them walking back to camp with their heads hanging low, their empty omer jars kind of swinging at their side, bummed out, everyone kind of probably pointing and laughing because we're generally cruel. Consider Egypt. Consider this in light of the refusal of rest here. Consider Egypt. God's people called out from Egypt to God, saying their oppression was great, and God heard them. That they were being pushed too hard, and God heard them. That there was not sufficient rest, and God heard them. God brings them out of Egypt to the wilderness. He feeds them with sweet bread every morning that they don't even really have to work for. They just got to get up and go get it. And then he gives them the sweet blessing of rest. God makes this bold statement to his children. My children, life with me is not like life in Egypt. Life with me is not like life in Egypt. Accept this gift of rest from your great provider. And rather than exclaiming, thank you, God, yes, Thank you, God. You're so good. It's so great not to be back in Egypt where there is no rest. Rather than that, they actually refuse the rest. The seventh day rolls around, and there's no thought given to this command to rest. Let's just get up and do what we do. We've got to make sure the man is here. This should be strikingly familiar to us. I will start with some personal confession, and then we'll make it horrible for everybody. In here at Crosspoint, for full-time ministers, uh, for every five years of full-time ministry, we get a three-month sabbatical. Like, you should probably be going, wow, that's what we're doing. Wow, that's amazing, unbelievable. A three-month sabbatical. You're told before then that the purpose of the sabbatical is rest and growth. That, that's why. We're looking for longevity in ministry. We don't want to bring a bunch of ministers in who stay here for about three years and then go somewhere else and stay there for three years and go somewhere else. We're looking for longevity in ministry, healthiness, 
in the body, particularly from those who are leading. It's important. Rest and growth. That's a pretty amazing blessing, isn't it? Could you imagine any bonehead ever not wanting to receive that gift? My first thought about this sabbatical, I had mine last year. My first thought, not my second thought or my third thought, my first thought was three months? Man, I could get a part-time job and get ahead financially. That's confession. First thought. Not thank you, Lord, and thank you, Crosspoint, for this wonderful gift of rest. No, I wanted to go out and collect more manna. I can get a part-time job. I wouldn't even have to get a full-time job. I just get a part-time job and be put in the way, and we can do this, we can do that. Where's the rest and growth? Now, I didn't do that, just for y'all who are wondering. I didn't get a part-time job. I was counseled otherwise. Um, um, <laughs> but that was my first thought. So now we make it personal for everybody. How many times are you granted the gift of rest and don't know what to do with it? How many times have you been granted this gift of rest and you don't know what to do with it? I'll ask it this way. You're a day and a half into your American two-day weekend. Rested? Anyone show up this morning bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, ready for the day? Were there any of you who maybe kind of, oh, man, just barely drug your sorry behind in, plop down? Are you rested? Have you and your family focused on God yet? Has there been intentional rest with a focus on the Lord in your household? How many times have you finally gotten a Saturday off only to know not, you don't know what to do with yourself? You finally get a Saturday off, yet you voluntarily open up your laptop to get a little work done. Maybe while your children are asking you to come play in the backyard. Busy. How many times have you finally gotten to take a vacation Yet you can't rest because you voluntarily entertain thoughts of all the things you're going to have to do to get caught up when you get back from your vacation. No rest. The world is not going to turn your phone off for you. Your boss is not going to hide your laptop from you. I was talking to Lindsay last night about this, and she reminded me of how we can immediately take an opportunity presented to us, particularly for overtime or extra work or an extra job, and we can take that opportunity and just immediately deem it as a blessing just because it's an opportunity. We just immediately, it's a blessing. That's a blessing. We're going to do that. When in reality, it may be more like this test in Exodus 16. It may be presented so that you have the opportunity to deny it and rest. That is so not our culture. You may have an opportunity presented to you for overtime and more money for your family, and it's there so that you can just deny it and rest. I probably sound crazy. Rest is an image bearer. We're so prone to this short-sighted thinking. The elephant in the room is, you don't know my boss, man. You don't know my job. No, I don't, but I know what God says. The elephant in the room right now is, I can't do that. If I do that, they're going to think I'm a bad employee. Bad employees are not made up of people who work really hard and are really diligent and rest when, they're, when it's right. That's not a bad employee. Sometimes people get fired unfairly. I acknowledge that. 
But the norm is not that people are defined as bad employees because on the days of work, they're diligent, they follow through, they're specific in their tasks, they communicate well, they help others, they're not self-centered, they're team players, and they rest. The rest part doesn't make you a bad employee. It'd be interesting to see what happens if you stand up for what the Lord says. Maybe that mandatory overtime isn't mandatory for forever. Consider God's response in verses 28 through 30. I want to be careful here. Consider the Lord's response to them going out and trying to get ahead a little bit. Verses 28 through 30. The Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, I've given you, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. You hear God saying, Stop focusing only on what you think you have to do and consider what it is I've already done. And poor Moses. Last week he was accused of murder by his flock. You brought us out here to kill us. They forgot that whole, we're going to the promised land, God's good, look at my shiny face thing. You brought us out here to kill us. And then he's held responsible by God for the sins of the people he's leading. If you're in a leadership role in any capacity whatsoever, let this be a reminder of the seriousness with which God considers his purposes. He goes to Moses. He doesn't go to Moses and say, dude, what's up? He goes to Moses and says, how long will you refuse to obey me? And God makes two bold statements in these three verses. How long will you refuse to obey me is the first one. It's not a matter of innocent, innocently getting a little extra manna collected, as if God's winking at our sin. He doesn't wink at it. He doesn't say, rest, and then to those who don't rest, he's like, yeah, I know, you got a work ethic. That's right. I'm a little bit proud of you. No. It's a matter of disobedience. How long will you refuse to obey me? That's not okay. You need to do what I command. Rest. If you continually disregard my design, it's only a matter of time until you disregard me. How can you say you're living for God while totally disregarding his design? There's a warning here. Stop it. Stop working. Today is not about what you cannot do. The Sabbath rest is not about what you cannot do. It's about the scandalous fact that you get to set your eyes on God. You get to worship. You get to rest in the finished work of Christ. You get to be uh, salty and bright to the rest of the world as you do it. And then God, the, the second thing I want us to note is he says, see, I'm giving you rest. I gave you more on the sixth day so you didn't have to work on the seventh day. So the people rested. It says in verse 30, so the people rested. I was blown away at this because God is so gracious as to repeat himself to a people set on fleshly and worldly pursuits. He's God. He's provided manna. He's brought them out of Egypt. He's done all these things. And and his people are saying, I just don't know if I can trust him. That's not a sober-minded account. Let's go backwards. He kept all of his promises to Father Abraham. He sustained Isaac. He brought Joseph into Egypt. He raised up Moses. He brought us out of Exodus. While all those crazy ten plagues were happening, we were in Goshen, and our livestock aren't even sick. 
There's hailstones killing their livestock. Our livestock aren't even sick. God delivered us through that. He delivered our livestock. He delivered our crops. God brought us out of Egypt. God brought us through the Red Sea. God brought us to Elam for a little break. God led us around the way of the Philistines so we didn't freak out because of all the war there. He showed us great mercy. God brought us to the wilderness of sin, and he gives us manna, and he says, don't work on the seventh day. You don't have to at that point say, I don't know if we can trust him. It's a pretty good track record. No fault on God's part at all. And he repeats himself. It blows my mind. He repeats himself to a people who are set on worldly and fleshly pursuits. He repeats himself. Verses 31 through 35. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generation so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and, take, and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. God is all about remembrance. God is all about remembrance. He doesn't want us to forget the important things. He defines the important things for us, amazing, and then he goes to great lengths to make sure we don't forget the important things, amazing. He gives us significant signs with each of his covenants because he's all about remembrance. Remember with, with Noah and the Noahic covenant, he gave the rainbow as a sign that he would not flood the earth again for God's people. That's a great sign of mercy and grace and dependence upon Lord, our Lord who brought Noah through the flood. In the Abrahamic covenant, the sign was circumcision, reminding us that our hearts would need to have cut away the unimportant things so that we could live for the glory of God and put his glory on display as a redeemed people. And here in the Mosaic Sinai covenant, the sign is the Sabbath. The sign we have here so that we don't forget the important things as defined by God is the Sabbath, reminding us that there is a unique rest that begins now for God's children and will be completely fulfilled when Christ returns to take us home. In these verses, God tells them to take manna and put it in a jar to be kept as a reminder to future generations, sort of a memorial. God's saying, I don't want them to forget. I, the Lord, the one true God, brought you out of Egypt, provided for you, and gave you rest. I don't want them to forget this gift that reflects my character. Put some of it in a jar and show it to your grandkids, is what he's saying. God's not just being sentimental here. I was thinking about the sentimental person. The sentimental person, interestingly, is most often the person who doesn't forget important things, right? The sentimental person keeps the, the movie ticket from the first date because they don't want to forget what, what she was wearing and what they spoke of and what movie they saw and how they laughed together. The sentimental person remembers dates. The sentimental person will write letters on important occasions and our culture generally does not give much thought or encouragement to the sentimental person. What I'm wanting us to see here is God's not just being sentimental. Although it's good to remember important things, a lot of us could learn a lot in the way of that. To have something that's a memorial that points to our journey, a certain point, a sort of Ebenezer that says, look at what God did at that point. Let's not ever forget that. 
There's things as, as families where you will need to be able to say to your kids, hey, you were young, but don't ever forget what God did for us. Remember that season? Remember that time? Don't ever forget. Even this story in Exodus, pointing back, don't ever forget what the Lord did for our Israelite brothers and sisters to communicate clearly to us how good he is and what he wants us to do. God goes beyond sentimentality to defining for us the things we must not forget. His reminder comes in the way of command. Don't do that. Make sure you do that. So God's not just being sentimental. Don't write him off. He's saying put some of it in a jar, show it to your kids and your great-grandkids, and tell them to do the same. Remembering God's provision and rest and the commands that are included with it are so important that this little omer jar of manna, seemingly insignificant, oh, that's cute for about a minute, was eventually placed in the Ark of the Covenant with the law, with the mercy seat, hammered gold, and placed in the Holy of Holies. That means it's important. In closing, I want to look at two pieces of Scripture. Turn to Amos 8. When you get there, open your Bible and blow the dust off of it. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, I think. In my little ESV, which I don't think is the same as your ESVs, it's page 769. Amos 8. There's two pieces of scripture I want to look at because they help us to have a, a greater understanding of what's going on here. Amos 8, verse 4. Verse 4. Hear this, you who trample on the needy. Now, now you can tell that the people being addressed aren't so great. Hear this, you who trample on the needy. And bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, When will this new moon be over that we can sell grain? And the Sabbath, when's that going to be over? that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances. I want you to see the type of person that, that does not like the Sabbath rest. Deal deceitfully with false balances that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. We'll give them sandals, but we'll put them to work. And sell the chaff of the wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on this account? And everyone mourn who dwells in it, and all of it rise like the Nile and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt. And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight when they're in the middle of working and oppressing the people. I'll turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. No chuckles. And I will make it like the morning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. What we see here is that from as far back as the establishment of Sabbath rest, from as far back as the establishment of Sabbath rest, there were greedy merchants who desired to take advantage of their employees 
and despised the Sabbath, saying that that rest was not divine at all, mainly because it got in the way of the bottom dollar. You may be thinking, oh, you've met my boss, to which I would remind you of what God says. God very mercifully reminds us that even though there are many who, who, who don't care about this Sabbath rest, who don't care about the Sabbath rest, Christ, who don't care about the time off you want for your family, who are all about the bottom dollar and godlessness. That's a very real reality for many of you. To which God mercifully reminds us that he's watching. Justice will roll. In the same way that he went to Moses and said, how long will you disobey me? So our God still watches and says, time will one day merge back into eternity. And what is important on that day is what should be important for my people today. You hear that? When time merges back into eternity, think about what's important. That's what you're living for today. Your job doesn't define what's important today. And on that end day, when this happens, then God will start defining it for us. That's not how it works. For the children of God, what you are living for on that day, what's important that day should be important on this day. The one true God defines what is important always and forever. He defines it. Live now for that which you're living for, for all of eternity. That which you'll have for all of eternity. Turn to Proverbs 30. Close with this verse in Proverbs. Proverbs 30, verses 7 through 9. Remember, this is a picture of wisdom. This is a picture of wisdom. I'm working on this with my family this week to try and remember these verses and memorize them. Because we need them. I'm preaching a message on something I'm not very good at. So these verses I find to be very helpful. Proverbs 30, verses 7 through 9. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Those are the two things that this wise person is asking of the Lord. I don't want to be a liar. I want to live by the truth. And don't give me poverty or riches. Is that anything similar to our prayers? Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. It's all about the name of the Lord. It's a picture of wisdom. Will this be your approach to work on Monday morning? Will this be your approach next week when it's time for a solemn rest? Will this be the cry of your heart? These verses make a statement from the heart of the wise believer saying, I'm not about riches or abundance. And if I have riches or abundance, I will not put my trust in those riches and abundance. I want to live by the truth and allow God to define my needs and supply my needs. And one of the needs that he defines is rest. I encourage you this morning to enjoy God. As we found last week, he is exceedingly and overwhelmingly good. There's never a time where he's more worthy of worship. What I mean is he's always most worthy of worship. As an act of worship, do whatever it is that you need to do to observe and obey the pattern of life and work and rest that God calls you to. Rest is not a hindrance to success. 
It is a gift from God and essential to God-honoring obedience. Success at the expense of God's glory is not success at all. We must allow God to define our needs, supply our needs. We must trust him at every step, never taking our eyes off of him. And that means observing rest. Let's pray. Lord, I confess this is a humbling message. Um, I want us as a congregation to be better about rest so that we'll more rightly reflect your character. I want us to be better about rest so we're not so prone to burnout and anger and anxiety and frustration. Lord, I'm reminded this morning that Philippians tells us that the anxiety that often comes from not resting is not noble, but it's sin because it's pride. We're called to humble ourselves before you and be anxious about nothing. So if we're anxious all the time, we're not humbling ourselves before you. So it's not noble, and I'm convicted this morning. I want us to be a people, Lord. Please make us a people. Please define these things for us and help us to walk according to them. As we've heard these truths this morning from your word, help us to remember them as you have done in all the previous generations. Help us to teach these things to our children. Help us not to raise future generations of children who don't care about rest and don't understand the importance of it and all they want to do is work and make more money. Lord, let us be diligent and hardworking and in fact set an example and what it means to be a good, hard, diligent, organized, specific, caring worker. Help us to set an example in that. But help us not to neglect this command you give us to rest. It's so important. My heart is heavy for us today, because I know that we're generally not good at this. Lord, we are completely dependent upon you. Most importantly, we I pray that we all here would be resting regularly in the finished work of Christ. That we would be motivated in our work day because Christ took care of the sin problem that we have. And the work of the Spirit enables us to put that sin to death. So that the unbelief and sin that would cause us to possibly fall away from you, you have given us an ability to, to, to overcome that because of Christ And it's not just an ability. Christ's righteousness is counted as our righteousness. So we live for you. I pray that we would do it according to your design. Pray that we would not be guilty of denying your design and eventually denying you. Lord, as the whole world is watching, I pray that your people would be an honor to you, that we would put your glory on display, that we would not argue about specifics and be legalist and judgmental, but that we would accept a gift that is absolutely divine in nature. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for Jesus. If not for the finished work of Christ, we would not even have the right to come to you in prayer. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Steve's going to come up. We're going to have the Lord's Supper. we're going to uh, partake in the Lord's Supper. And I'm hoping this morning as I was listening to Scott and 
kind of what I'd prepared to share with you this morning. Um, I'm hoping that we can uh, understand that what we're hearing about work and rest uh, this morning from his word and God's design in that, that that informs us about Christ. And as Scott was talking about the finished work of Christ, that we do find that sufficient. And we say that, and I think we say it on a regular basis. Uh, but I think if we were all honest, we'd say we struggle with that. And that's the, that's the problem with sin. Uh, and that's a separation that we experience is when Christ is not sufficient. So this morning, what I want to do is fast forward in the word a little bit. Where we hear about God's provision in Christ and what we have in Christ. I'm always encouraged when I read this letter. So I want to read this to you this morning. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. To the saints, and I put this in, who are in Greenville at Cross Point Fellowship. This is our story. Those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who are the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. You hear that? Not that you'll just hear this, but you'll know it. This is God's provision. Having the heart, the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might? You hear the provision now, provision in the future and inheritance, and a God who is all-powerful. He worked this in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him 
He fills all in all. That's a lot. Those are big statements. We're talking about eternity. We're talking about everything. Your full and complete provision. When that's not sufficient, we're not at rest. Scott just shared with us, we have no rest because of unbelief. So this supper we're about to have is for those who are in Christ. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. I want to take just a minute. You know, we've just heard God's word concerning this rest and his provision. Let's just take a minute and pray. Prepare ourselves for this supper. Father, we come to you this morning asking for your grace and mercy on us, Father. Father, that you would cause our hearts, our minds to be enlightened, to know the fullness of your provision in Christ, to rest in that provision. Father, we thank you for Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This, is the, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Father, again, we thank you for provision in Christ. Father, pray that uh, this would fuel our week. Father, that we would be confident in you. Um, Father, even in matters of work and rest, the physical. Uh, Father, that we would trust you in your word, your instruction. Father, we thank you for Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Let's worship and giving. Um, go home and take a nap. Just turn the TV off. Go home and take a nap. I, I was thinking there, we could kind of desire a, a, uh, a list of, well, okay, what, can I, what can't I do? What, what should we not do? And if I do that, I'm being legalistic and, and silly by giving you a list. Um, so I would encourage you as families this week, though, to take some time and consider how is our family, heads of household, y'all are going to have to lead out in this, how is our family going to observe this Sabbath rest? 
How are we going to be specific to set our minds to the Lord and consider what he's done, what he's doing, and what he's going to do? So I encourage all to spend time in that uh, as families this week. Let's stand and we'll pray and be dismissed. Lord, I'm thankful uh, for Christ. I'm thankful that one day we uh, will rest from all of the work and our work will be praising you wholeheartedly for all of eternity. That one day we will be with you. Lord, I pray that we would be mindful of that final day where you say you'll raise us up. Lord, we are thankful. I pray that we would be a people who, uh, who rest rightly uh, for your glory, not selfishly, but uh, in, a, in a form of worship. We love you. We thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all have a good afternoon.